Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hi, this is Mike Dream, Station Manager for 810KLVZ. I met author, speaker, and discipleship trainer Mike Wolf a few months back through a men's group that we both attend. After listening to what he had to say in the group, I began reading his blogs, and his heart for men and challenging message for the church led me to ask him in for some interviews. Shortly after that, we began discussing a weekly spot so he could bring this entire message forward to our listening audience. I'm now proud to announce his new show, Voice in the Wilderness, beginning right now. Hi, this is Mike Wolf on Voice in the Wilderness, and for the past two months we've focused on what I call the three-part perfect storm coming against men of faith in the church today, playing upon the sons of Adam and their inherited curse of apathy and tendency to abandon their God-given posts as leaders and protectors of the church, their families, and explorers and expanders of the kingdom of heaven on earth. The first part of this storm is our Laodicean culture of wealth, comfort, and power, that makes men too comfortable and secure and invades their worlds with the love of money and all the collateral damage that comes with that. The second is the doctrine of modern Christendom's idol of grace that strips God's power, his judgment, and his justice from his love, his mercy, and his forgiveness, giving men a further false sense of comfort and an easy way out of the responsibilities God places upon all who say they follow him. Lastly, we discussed a modern church structure mirroring the structure Jesus encountered in temple worship when he came to the earth. I call it classroom Christianity, and it teaches learning without experience and study without application that further plays to the apathetic nature of the sons of Adam. Together, these three keep men in our congregations in a state of blissful sleep in the pews, while the cause of Christ, their faith, their world, and their families suffer the consequences. The perfect storm led the late Dallas Willard to write in his book, Divine Conspiracy. Very few people today find Jesus interesting as a person or of vital relevance to the course of their actual lives. And frankly, he is not taken to be a person of much ability. The most fascinating, interesting, and adventurous man who ever lived has been reduced to something far less, and it has left the men in the church bored and disconnected rather than excited and engaged. So what do we do to begin to rebuild a passion for the Jesus of the Bible? If I might steal a popular advertising slogan, the most interesting man who ever lived. Mr. Willard's assessment is astute because it gets to the heart of the issue as to what is ailing our men by bringing up the issue of perception. Before proceeding on to this week's topic, we must talk for a moment about truth, the nature of truth. 
There is truth which does not change. The definition of truth is that which conforms with fact or reality, that which simply is or simply exists. Then there is perception, and perception ebbs and flows with every moment and every situation. Perception is defined as being aware of something through our senses, a belief, a judgment, or an impression. The truth of who Jesus Christ is has become a far distant notion to the uninteresting person of little ability most in modern Christendom have come to perceive him to be. And so to begin rebuilding an authentic relationship with Jesus, we must first come to change our perceptions of him. They've got to start lining up with the truth. When asked by Moses to describe himself, God said, I am that I am. Jesus said of himself, I am the way the truth, and the life. Hebrews 13 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. All of these verses scream the fact that God is and is therefore reality and truth. He is the ultimate reality and truth. It is our perceptions of him that make the difference between a richly fulfilling life coming to know and then following him and merely saying we believe through studying him. It is also the difference between life and death. For if we perceive Jesus improperly, how can we know him? How can he know us? Truth does not bend to perception. That is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our perceptions must bend to truth, not the other way around. Perception must bow the knee to truth if truth is to be understood and embraced. On the contrary, truth really could care less what perception thinks of it. In our quest to return to the exciting, adventurous, fulfilling Jesus of the Bible, we must go back and adjust several misperceptions, modern Christendom and its idol of grace and his modern-day prophets have filled us with. I want to talk about four of them over the next several weeks. First, we start where Paul said we should start, what he called in 1 Corinthians 15, the matter of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and arose. We need to come to a fresh understanding of the cross of Christ, for it is there the old man must die to make way for the new. And if he does not, whatever is left alive of the old will be a stumbling block for the new, as long as it is allowed to live. The second is to answer the question as to why people perceive Jesus spoke with such authority. The third will be how too much perceived familiarity with God leads us away from who he truly is. And lastly, we're going to talk about Jesus' real and lasting testimony among us and why it has transcended the ages. Our Laodicean culture, our doctrine of the idol of grace, and our current system construct of Christianity has led us to misperceiving the truth of Jesus in all of these areas. Once we rebuild a perception that is in line with the truth, we can move on to higher callings in Christ, for there are always higher callings in Christ Jesus. So let us begin with going back to taking a truthful look at the cross. What does it really look like? In 1 Corinthians 1.23, we read, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. We must preach Christ crucified because it is the power of God. And as Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.3 that the cross was the matter of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. Then in Isaiah 53.3-5, we read this, Jesus was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed. If we follow Jesus, and we are to follow him, right? This sounds like a really fun place to go. The cross was not some statue we see gleaming in the sun on the top of a church building or gleaming on someone's chest in a trinket of gold or silver. The cross was where despised, forsaken men full of sorrows and grief went. They went to be stricken, smitten, afflicted, and pierced through for transgression. They went to be crushed for iniquity and chastened and scourged for their sins. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 6, we read, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives." The cross is a place of enduring. It is a place of shame. Jesus bore our shame on the cross. And this passage says that he despised it. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. Jesus wasn't looking forward to going to the cross. As a matter of fact, he sat in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drips of blood, saying, Father, if you can remove this cup from me, please do. It was a place of shame. It was a place of torture. And he despised it. But for our good, he endured it. 
It was a place where we learn to endure hostility against us from the world, as Jesus did, from those sinners, so we don't lose heart as we serve them, for that's what we're to do. It is a place we are reminded that no matter how much we have suffered, we haven't even begun to shed blood in our striving against sin. It is the ultimate place where we experience God's discipline, reproof, and scourging if we want to experience the full measure of God's love. If we want to be truly called his sons, then we've got to go through it. And we have to endure it. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read, All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. Compare that to the last verse. It talks about how we are scourged, how we are disciplined, how we are reproved as does 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture, all of it, is profitable for our teaching, for our reproof, for our correction, and for our training, because God wants to equip us for the the incredible adventure he's got out there for us. But it's not going to happen if we don't endure the cross first. Where does this ability to endure God's discipline and learn suffering begin? Well, according to the verses we've just read, it begins at the cross. That is the first place where we have to truly change from our former ways. That is the first confrontation that we endure at the hands of Jesus Christ. Is it not? It's the cross. That is the place where Jesus says, hey, if you want to accept me as Lord and Master, if you want to have salvation, if you want to gain the benefits of all that I have to offer you, this is where you start changing. This is where it's no longer okay to be who you were. This is where the pain begins. This is where the sacrifice begins. It is the initial confrontation between the old man and the new man. In 1 Corinthians 1, 20-24, I read that earlier. It says that it is a spiritually discerned place. The finest wisdom of the world cannot even comprehend it. It is a stumbling block to the religious and the foolish and foolishness to the worldly wise. But to those who have truly experienced it in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is the power and the wisdom of God. Now let me ask you a question. Was this your experience at the cross? Did you experience pain? Did you experience sacrifice? Did you feel the shame of Jesus Christ? Did you feel the suffering of your Savior on the cross? Or did you follow modern evangelism's road and take a quick snapshot of Jesus hanging there, send him a thank you note, and get past what you have to sacrifice quickly so you could get on with what you can get from him? 
because that's the way we're selling him. That's the way we're marketing Jesus these days. You don't need to spend much time at the cross because he took care of all of that for you. Let's get on with heaven. Let's get on with blessing. Let's get on with power. Let's get on with all the goodies. And as is the case with all things that Jesus did, the good shepherd wants us to experience the cross with him, not just be observers in the bleachers. Under the classroom Christianity model we've discussed for the past two weeks, we're told to be students who observe rather than disciples who participate. But Jesus didn't make students. He made disciples. Jesus set a living example of everything he asked us to do. And then he said, follow me. As I was putting this study together, God led me to two verses. I'm about to read 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 and Romans 6, 1 through 7. And it was a real revelation to me. As I read through these, listen to hear how many times you hear the words with him. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, we read, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. In 2 Timothy 2.11 and 12, this process begins, this idea that we are to die with him if we want to move on to the living part. After that, we will need to endure with him the same sort of sufferings he suffered by following him into a world that hates him. And this we must do if we want to reign with him. Our modern evangelism and teaching tells us there's no need for suffering or endurance. Just pray a prayer, show up at the temple now and then, and live life any way we want, and God's grace will carry us on to heaven. In Romans 6, we see those words again, with him, with him, with him. We are to be baptized into his death. That means immersed. We, we are to immerse ourselves in the likeness of his death and be buried with him. We are to be united with him in, in that likeness and crucified with him if we want to with him be raised to new life. Six times in these two passages, the words with him are used. This was a real revelation to me as I studied these verses. I have always respected the cross. I always 
thought I understood the cross. But I looked at it because of what I was taught over the years and because of the way I was evangelized that Jesus did that for you. Jesus took all that on himself for you. And that's true. But the way I was taught was he did all that so you don't have to. He took all the pain. He endured all the shame. He endured all the suffering. He made all the sacrifice so that I wouldn't have to. And as I read these passages, God was saying, no, no. Yes, he did all that, but now he wants you to go through it with him. He doesn't want to be like some kind of museum display where you, where you stop by, leave a tip in the jar, and move on to the next display you want to look at. He doesn't want us to view the cross from a distance. He wants us to join him. He wants us to go through it with him. He wants us to be crucified with him. Because if we're not crucified with him, there's going to be things that remain alive. And anything that remains alive after the cross is going to hinder us all along our relationship path with Jesus Christ. And it is critical to note the idol of grace showing up here in this uh, Romans 6 verse. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Do you want a pretty adequate description of, the, of modern Christendom? That's, that pretty well nails it. I know we don't say that, but look at the way we live. Look at the, the instances of, of drug abuse. Look at the instances of love of money, you know, addiction to all kinds of things. Look at the instances of divorce. Uh, I mean, across the board. You can look at that and say, hey, let's continue in sin so that grace may increase. And this is precisely what we have. You know, live any way you like. Nothing can snatch you from Jesus' hands once you pray the prayer. And what does Paul attribute this tragic state of affairs to? People who have not experienced the cross. Okay, Paul was not writing to unbelievers here. Paul was writing to believers. And I think what he was saying is, <laughs> you guys may have visited there, but you didn't experience it. As it is today, if you visit but don't experience the cross, you will end up visiting but not experiencing Jesus afterwards. If you visit and fail to experience the cross and Jesus Will he say to you on Judgment Day that he knew you? If he doesn't know you, will this eternal life guarantee you by modern Christendom be yours? Really? Do you want to take a chance on that? The cross is also a place where we go to give up, not to get. Modern evangelism teaches salvation is all about getting. Come get eternal life. Come get gifting. Come get power. Come get peace. Come get wisdom. Come get blessing. And if we engage in the entire process of discipleship, that is true. There are those benefits. But it must begin with giving up everything 
before we can even think about getting anything. Let me say that again. The cross is about giving up everything before we can even think about getting anything. The cross is where Jesus died to set us free. And it is where we must also die before we can find that same freedom. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The old things have to pass away before the new things can come. And the cross is where it's got to be done. In Matthew 13, 44 and 45, we read, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine, fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. We must sell all we have, everything, if we want to buy into this new life. Not just what we want to sell or what's comfortable for us to sell, but all of it. In Mark 21 and 22, we read, in Mark, I'm sorry, Mark 2, 21 and 22, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Again, the idea that you can't leave things undead at the cross. You can't just visit. You got to experience it. Everything has to die. What must I? Pride of self, any claim at all to our future, our love of money, our independence, anything we love in this world. So, again, it's, it's important that we experience the cross of Jesus Christ, not just visit there. We can't just make a day trip there. And next week we're going to talk about, is it just a day trip? Or are we to go there fairly often? Are we to take advantage of what Jesus has for us at the cross every day? So until next week when we continue this discussion on the cross of Christ, I wish you God's blessings. This is Mike Wolf, Voice in the Wilderness, signing off. You've been listening to the new Voice in the Wilderness broadcast with author, speaker, and discipleship trainer, Mike Wolf. If you're feeling led to know more concerning Mike's challenging message to men and the church, his website is thereconnectedchurch.org. Or you can email Mike at reconnectedchurch at gmail.com and request to be put on his blog list. You can find his books, The Lost Supper, and his devotional series, Praying Today's Psalms, on Amazon. Until this same time next week, remember all you sons of Adam, we are made to thrive by joining the most exciting man who ever lived on the greatest adventure that ever was. We know we were made for so much more than ordinary life. It's time for us to more than just survive. We were made to thrive.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.